Welcome to the Learning and Performance Podcast, the show where we explore ideas, strategies, and tools for enhancing human learning and performance. I'm your host, Patrick Healy. Learning and performance are inextricably connected. If we can't learn, we can't grow. If we can't grow, we end up hitting plateaus. We repeat the same mistakes, stagnate, and fail to reach our potential. When we improve our ability to learn, we enhance our ability to perform at a higher level. Today, high performance in more and more domains increasingly depends on rapid learning. Whether you're a student, a researcher, professional, an athlete, this show discusses research and practices that you can use to learn faster and perform better. Welcome to another episode of the Learning and Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Healy, and today I am so excited to be joined by Dr. Jenny Wu. Jenny and I are former Harvard classmates in the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and Jenny is also an MBA social entrepreneur and a PhD researcher in emotional intelligence. Jenny has dedicated her life to helping people perform at their best from classrooms to boardrooms. She's the founder and CEO of Mind Brain Emotion, which was incubated out of the Harvard Innovation Lab. And she's also the creator of a series of award-winning card games and mental health tools to help children and adults build emotional resilience and social mastery. Her best-selling card games, 52 Essential Conversations and 52 Essential Coping Skills are used in homes, schools, and workplaces in over 50 countries. I wanted to speak with Jenny today because I think what she's been doing with Mind, Brain, Emotion is terrific. Her series of 10 versatile card games help people develop and apply essential human skills in an age of AI. They're used not only in educational and nonprofit institutions, but also in corporate workplaces. And I thought she would have some insights for all of us on how we can upskill ourselves with these human skills to maximize our learning and performance. So with that, I bring you Jenny Wu. Welcome to another episode of the Learning and Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Healy, and today I have with me Jenny Wu. Jenny, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Pat. So just to start, I'll have introduced you in the pre, but who are you and what do you do? Yeah. So I am the founder and CEO of Mind Brain Emotion, which is a company that creates cleverly simple card games and courses to help children and adults to learn, practice, and apply what I call the essential human skills and their very personal, social, cultural context. And you can imagine, especially practicing human skills in an age of AI that we're in. And these are the skills like critical thinking, problem solving, social skills, relationship skills, emotional intelligence, communication, and self-resilience and awareness. And in addition to that, I also teach 
Emotional Intelligence at the University of California, Irvine. And I speak frequently in the corporate workplaces and schools around these human skills and emotional intelligence for parents, educators, and entrepreneurs. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, Jenny. There's so, you know, even in this age of AI, there's in K through 12 and other spaces, there's a lot of talk around social emotional learning but then in the in the corporate sector in, emotional intelligence is a is a huge thing too so as i say some people call them soft skills but the soft skills are the harder ones i've found and they're not even so soft they're essential as you say yeah, and it's so funny you brought that up, Pat. I was just doing this global talk with a bunch of business analysts and project managers and about emotional intelligence, which is really the same coined term as social emotional learning, right? It's funny how they call the same thing differently to appeal to different audiences. And so I do remember I said, you know, emotional intelligence is really known as soft skills. And, you know, it's funny that someone said, you know, these aren't really, just like you said, not soft skills. These are now ironically more technical skills that we all need to upskill and learn ourselves. And, you know, some other people are like, you know what, these are the human skills. And so that kind of really stuck with me. And so now I really say that I teach the essential human skills. Yeah, I like that a lot. Jenny, for our listeners who might be new to the term, can you just give us an overview of like, what is emotional intelligence or what is social emotional learning and why it's so crucial in today's world? Sure. You know, this is what I researched in my PhD program. And emotional intelligence or social emotional learning is really our ability to recognize, label, and express our emotions, what we're experiencing, and also being able to recognize that accurately and timely in others. And then also, what do we actually do with these emotions? How do we manage ourselves? And how do we influence others? So it's really a combination of those. And some of the myth I get a lot is, you know, people think that it's a charisma. It's something that you have or you don't, which is totally not true. And that's where social emotional learning came from, which is, the fact that these are skill sets that can be learned. So how do we learn these social and emotional skills? And so that's now picking up in the K-12 just education space. And I'm sure we'll talk more around that, but this is sort of the overview of what exactly is emotional intelligence. You can imagine, you know, to your second part of the question, why is it so important nowadays? Well, from a research standpoint, we are finding there's a meta-analysis and research of a bunch of right research analysis that's shown that, you know, people are less emotional intelligence these days compared to before. And we can attribute that to perhaps, you know, Twitter-like communication, more online instead of offline, the pandemic, less face-to-face and less ability to practice skills and perhaps willingness to connect. And then there's Also, the mental health aspect, which is one thing I do a lot as well, right? Coupled with being so pandemic scarred and social media saturated and now AI powered, we just have less opportunities and emphasis to be able to practice these skill sets. And with AI coming, how are we going to differentiate ourselves? right? It really comes down to what AI cannot do, right? So AI's got the IQ covered, we have our personality, and we have our EQ. And these are really the two sort of muscles we can flex and also compensate to thrive in the environment that we are in today now. Yeah, you brought up so many, so many good points in this age of, of AI. It's almost like the human skills become more important than ever. 
And yeah, with COVID and so many things nowadays, social media, I think people are feeling less connected and maybe some of these skills are atrophying. So I think some of the work that you're doing around that to really help kids and help teens and help adults develop these skills is really, really important. I like what you said too about it being a skill set. It's not you have it or you don't. Some people might be naturally maybe a little bit more skilled based on temperament or how they were raised, but that doesn't mean that you can't improve it. You definitely can. These these things are skills or learned habits that you can get better at over time. Yeah, absolutely. And this is where the learning and performance comes in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually with that in mind, I skipped my starter questions. I usually ask people. The first one is, how do you define performance and what does high performance look like in your context? For me, you know, performance, I feel like it's really outcome driven and it's goal oriented. So it really is an outward reflection of that culmination of your knowledge, skills, capabilities, the things that you've learned and your attitude. And, you know, I also teach management fundamentals to leaders. And so one thing I talk about a lot in terms of evaluating your performance as a leader is looking at how effective are you and how efficient are you. And so I think it really applies in this case as well, right? Effective meaning, you know, are you actually anchoring on the right goals? Did you actually put your eggs in the right basket, right? (laughs) And whereas are you just blindly achieving? Because we have a lot of high achievers, they are achieving, but are they actually going the right direction? And then efficiency, on the other hand, is, you know, are you optimizing the balance between your internal resources versus your external conditions and resources? Do you have reserve left to uh, tackle other performance goals, right? And so in this case, it's, are you holding the basket that fits and supports your eggs perfectly, right? Or are you kind of hauling like a big suitcase with two little eggs, right? So so efficiency and effectiveness are really important to think about when you are figuring out how you are performing and when to perform. Yeah. I like that image of the basket with the eggs. And if your basket, is, if there's a hole in the bottom, the eggs, I mean, if it's small or there's a hole or you're not going to be very effective. I think it was Peter Drucker who said, there's nothing so useless as doing something efficiently that shouldn't be done at all. And I think that's where the the effectiveness piece comes in. It's like, what what moves the needle for you? Like, what do you, as a leader, what do you care about or what's most important to the organization? as opposed to just kind of blindly working on thing to thing, project to project, like I think so many leaders fall into sometimes. Yeah. And, you know, on your point, right, you asked about what does high performance look for me? And, you know, I think we all make these mistakes and I certainly do where I'm passionate about something and I just love it and I just want to do it forever. But you know, there are other higher priorities, they may be less glamorous. And so how high performance means to me is, you know, am I making the most of my time tackling on the right problem? And, you know, one of the biggest limiting resource is time for me. So it, it really is about, you know, how I'm spending my time. And did I get, you know, strategic goals and initi- initiatives done instead of, you know, doing something small? <laughs> So, yeah. 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 Did I did I get this email off? It's it's more yeah at the strategic level. Well, you you're so busy too, Jenny. I know you're a mom and a, a CEO, and you just told me before the recording. You, you you know you've been traveling and doing a lot of talks. So you sound really really busy these days. 
it's it's I, I like to call it fun busy. Fun busy. Yeah, the good the good <laughs> type um, of busy, yeah. The good type of busy, exactly. But but yeah, it is also about am I balancing my life as a whole, holistically, not just professionally, but also personally. So that's also what it means for me to be high performing. Yeah, I like this image of a high performing being the outcomes, but also how you're doing it. So kind of, it's not only the outcomes, but it's it's the behaviors or the internal states that help drive those outcomes. And like aligning those two, I think I think is is really important. What about learning? How do you define learning? Yeah, well, first of all, I learned that there's still so much more to learn. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, to me, learning really happens anytime, anywhere. It's setting agnostic. It happens 24-7 and it incorporates all five senses, not just cognitive, right, but many other elements. And so, Pat, when we were just graduating, so I was asked to be a teaching fellow for Harvard's Graduate School of Education's inaugural foundations course for the new incoming students. It was help people learn. That was what the course was called. And so I kind of pull back on the definition of that. And it really is, it says, learning is an active and interactive process, profoundly shaped by cognitive affective, right? The emotions, identity, interpersonal, social, cultural, organizational, and other structural factors. So how we learn are very much not just within, it's it's heavily dependent and influenced and shaped by what's outwardly. Uh, so for example, the learning environment, right? That we design and we're in, and that's what makes it active learning. But I think good learning happens when it is user-driven and playful in some sense. Sense. Yeah, I remember taking that course, and I remember I remember liking that definition because it really emphasized how learning is a process. It's not an event where you read something and then you know it and then you've learned it. It's really this process that, as designers or as L and D people or as teachers or as parents, we're constantly designing environments that influence how that process plays out. So it's not. I mean, there are internal aspects, but in terms of environment design and learning experiences, I think, yeah, that's what we're in the business of doing. Yeah. And, you know, I love that you said it's a process because one draws to mind sometimes this process is so invisible that it's really hard for us to grasp exactly where we are on that process or, you know, like how we are doing. So what reminded me was, you know, I... I was also a personal fitness trainer in my 20s, just for fun. And what we learn in personal training is, you know, when you're learning, right, when your muscles are learning, they are actively breaking down, right, the muscle fibers, and you're rebuilding them to make it stronger. So that's like a really concrete visual for me and the process of learning, how that really looks like and how it happens, right? It's not one step forward always, but it could be one step backwards, two steps forward, and then one step backwards. So I really just, that image reminds me of what learning is. Yeah. I, I love that image because if, if you think about it from a from a mental standpoint, it's similar to how if you're lifting something and it's it's hard, it feels uncomfortable, right? And I think some people sometimes make the mistake of thinking, well, if if I feel uncomfortable, that means I'm dumb or I'm not getting it or I can't get it. But actually- I try to tell you know students or professionals. Well, no, that's the sign that you're learning. That's the sign that the, like the learning is happening because you need support, yes, but you also need challenge in order to learn something and have it make a difference in your mind. That level of 
difficulty, educators talk about desirable difficulties, right? Yep. And without those, your brain doesn't feel the need to learn for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's almost like that zone of proximal development where you're pushing yourself just enough that it takes effort, but it's realistic and feasible still in some way. And that's true learning. Yeah, the sweet spot right there. Yeah. My last one, how do you see learning relating to performance? I would say roughly speaking, learning is sort of almost like the input, whereas performance is the output or really the feedback on your learning progress, your input. And performing or performance is what we do when we're applying and transferring our learning to whether it's the same thing or something adjacent. And so I feel like learning happens at all times. That's one sort of disclaimer in that it's not just the input, but it's also the output because you really, really be learning from what you're performing. So you're always 24-7 continuously iterative learning and it's such an overlapping process. Great. I ask that because listeners come from different realms, some in K through 12, some in higher ed, some in corporate. And some people see, you know, in, in higher ed, for example, sometimes the learning, you know, in an academic setting is the performance. You score on a, on a test and that's your performance to, to show how much you've, you've learned. But in other settings, learning is, is kind of the means to the end of performance. And so it's just interesting to, to hear all these different perspectives on how the two kind of interrelate. Are they one and the same or is one kind of an input to the other? But you're right too. When performance is happening, you get feedback on your performance and then that can help learn. Yeah, it makes so much sense, right? The luxury of being in education is learning is your performance in some ways. You have no penalty. It's really here to help you learn. But in the workplace, you are learning to benefit in some ways the company. And, you know, Pat, you might not know about this, but I actually started my career um, as a human capital consultant at Deloitte. And so it was a combination of being an instructional designer and learning and development, change management, communication, organizational development. It was really working with different Fortune 500 companies and creating, in my case, you know, whether it's online learning or paper-based learning, global learning around business processes or technical system implementations or, you know, annual reviews, things around that. And, you know, learning and performance from an L&D standpoint is really about yeah, you are empowering employees' growth by, you know, helping them learn, upskill. But ultimately, the performance is about driving business performance instead of, I mean, it is your performance, but it really is the annual review of your performance in this business, right? So. Yeah. Ideally, it's your learning leads to better individual performance, which leads to better team performance, better organizational performance in terms of like business outcomes. Yeah. Thank you for those starter questions. Let's get back to some of your research and work. Jenny, what inspired you to create MindBrain Parenting? Was there a particular experience or moment that made you realize the need for social emotional learning or emotional intelligence tools in our society today? Yeah, I've always been in the human development realm. As I mentioned, started as a human capital consultant, working with people, organizations, and understanding just really seeing the importance of these skill sets, right? These human skills, soft skills in the workplace, and what happens when 
leaders don't have them, right? You can imagine a toxic workplace, right? And not only if you're emotionally, not emotionally intelligent, then you are not only impacting yourself, but your team and those around you. And, you know, promotions are lost. You have turnovers, people are good, people are leaving, disgruntled, you're the morale is, is incredibly horrible. And so from there, I pivoted into education, started as a school director for Montessori. And that's where I began to realize, you know, it's so important teaching children at a young age about these skills, because, you know, I I didn't see it in the workplace. And I certainly don't see a lot in the parents (laughs) of the children. So, you know, there's this joke around school administrators and even teachers where parents are the hardest to teach than the kids. They're the troublemakers, right? And so that's where I realized, wow, the ecological need for these sets of skills and how school today are not really providing those opportunities. And so that inspired me to do the Harvard program as well as the PhD program around it. And having also worked as a cognitive science researcher with adults that are 70 years plus around learning, around building their working memory systems and, you know, having those growth mindset, I kind of really worked across the lifespans and saw the importance of social emotional learning, emotional intelligence, human skills across age groups and how the consequences of not having that manifested in different ways. And you know, that Harvard's longest uh, running study, which is, you know, what makes people happy, all that stuff, right? In order to have connections, relationships, which are the elements of really happy and healthy living, you, you kind of need these skills to be able to reach out, connect and maintain friendships and build healthy boundaries. Yeah. Yeah. Jenny, in that last part, I think you mentioned the, the Harvard study of, uh, I think it was adult development and that study, I mean, it found a lot of things, but the top one was relationships matter in terms of the happiness later in life. People who look back and say relationships are number one, the most significant contributor to happiness. But to you know have those relationships and to interact with people and have a good experience, you need these skills, right? And the emotional intelligence skills. So that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you. It's because you have worked with so many different populations. Yeah, thank you. I know on your website, you have quite a number of card games these days. So tell us about your series of social emotional learning games. So the first one, 52 Essential Conversations, was incubated out of Harvard Innovation Labs. And it really spoke to the gaps that I felt were around in other senses. How can we pick up these skills and practice and apply these skills easily? Because we are, no matter kids or adults these days, we are incredibly busy, right? And it's hard to get us focused really in anything. So how do we do that cleverly and seamlessly? And so that's why I created these card games. They are bite-sized learning. They can be anytime and anywhere. And again, they are relationship focused. They are very social so that you are not only learning, but you're helping others learn. You're learning together. And because of this act of learning, you are performing and getting better, right? Not just the skills, but also your relationships and how well you know yourselves and each other, how you can advocate yourself. So the Harvard Gazette featured it, which was 
tremendous. And so I continued my research at the University of California, Irvine. And that was where I started peeling back and realized that, well, in order to have these authentic conversations, we need the relationships. And so the second deck was about relationship skills. And that's where I started expanding, not just to children, education, parents, but really the relationship skills deck was for everyone. And in fact, most recently, I used the cards with Accenture, with Google, and very soon with other corporations. And so it's about also team building, being able to kind of name the elephant in the room, right? Being able to speak candidly without feeling penalized and being able to really be a good person, a good partner, parent, and team member. And then from there, COVID hit. I was teaching at the time in higher education. I just realized how the students needed so much real concrete strategies and skills, again, to cope with stress, anxiety, depression, not even like at the general population level. This is not clinical. Like just we can all use some of these skills to prevent us from ever going into the clinical side. And so that's when I created the 52 essential coping skills, which is still today the number one bestseller. It's number one ranked on Amazon within the category. And this is where, you know, these are real exercises to help people embed within their daily practice. That takes like two minutes to 10 minutes, or you can do an hour, which therapists use for group sessions and therapies and around building these habits, right, for life. And so I had, I can actually go on and on. So then I created the critical thinking skills, which is uncovering our cognitive biases. Happy to talk more about that. And then there is a set of social skills for K to 12 inclusion skills. And the very latest is interview skills. So being able to interview well, whether it's for school admissions or for job interviews, because I, in my former life, I was also an HR recruiter and I worked in talent strategy doing 360 assessments. So those were some of the skills I, I saw really prevented people from you know, looking good on paper to getting that actual job or actual promotion or actual admissions into their top desired college or job. Yeah. So you started with 52 essential conversations and then expanded out from there covering relationships, coping. And I was on the website last night and, and a couple of days ago. Yeah. There's a lot, a lot of decks now. And what I like about them in particular, Jenny, is, is two things. And, and you mentioned them. One is their bite size. So they're not, you know, a long program you have to go through. You can do them really, really quickly within an hour. A parent can use them easily. A team can use them at work, the cards, and kind of have fun with them too. But then the second thing is the experiential learning aspect, as you mentioned. You know, I laugh sometimes. There's a lot of, especially in corporate training and development, a lot on emotional intelligence training. And sometimes, you know, you'll walk into the classroom and there'll be a presentation on emotional intelligence which is in, to me isn't the most emotionally intelligent way to present, like present the content. Like the theory is important, but unless people are actually practicing the skills, I struggle to see sometimes the impact that it can make. So what I like is if you're trying to learn basketball, and I've used this example before, you do it by playing basketball. Like, yes, you, have, you do reflection, and, but you have to develop that muscle memory. And the same, I think the same with these conversational skills and, or coping skills, you learn it by the doing. Yeah, it's so funny you mentioned that. And let me tell you, Pat, I've had to deliver 
like so many training in the corporate workplace to get to this point. And, you know, I was once the global lead for Chevron that's in charge of a business process redesign. And so I just remember vividly, I, you know, being the lead, but I also went from writing the training, the instruction to actually delivering it. And in this case, delivering it back to back for like 30 days straight. These are six hour mm-hmm. sessions oh every single day to supervisors, team leads. And I just remember, oh my gosh, <laughs> like, and so you get a lot of cues from your audience, right? What works and what doesn't. So when you mentioned, you know, just sitting down and learning just learning instead of learning performing right at the same time and kind of getting that real candid real time feedback there is something magical about the latter one right and so that kind of really enabled me to to create it in this format yeah so we've been talking about this real time learning could you maybe give us a preview of some of your of your decks maybe we can maybe you and I could engage in a little experiential learning Sure. The first one, I'm going to try to like make it as relevant to learning and performance in different ways. So just to give you a sampling, I would say the first one is out of the 52 essential coping skills. And this is one of the card and this card topic is called mindfulness. So not mindful, but mind full. Your mind is full, right? Lots of tabs in there, right? So this is an exercise to really help you understand what cognitive load is. Because how can you learn, you know, as the, as I say, the trainer, the professor, the teacher, whatnot, right? You first have to assess like, are your students or audience in the right mindset? And this is also really important for me as a keynote speaker, right? Can they digest and understand what I'm talking. So you have to be aware of that learning environment again. And so also for the learner themselves, you have to understand your cognitive load is the total amount of mental effort you're using. Are you tapped out or are you feeling fresh and you can, you know, take in new information because prolonged overload leads to your frustration and burnout. So that comes into your efficiency and your performance and your learning. And so this exercise is kind of help you understand if your mind were a browser, right, go ahead and write down the topics that are open, right, in your mind and in your browser tabs, right? So this helps you highlight and just understand what is weighing you down, what is preventing you from taking in new information. And then it goes into the exercise of how do you close, press that X button, right? Close out some of these things in your mind to make space for what's important right now. Just on the first one, it's uh, what you said is really relevant because just before this conversation, literally in the, in the physical world, I had, oh my gosh, I had so many browser tabs open and it's almost like sometimes you can view your computer as a, as a reflection of your mind. Like I'm thinking about so many things th- this week and definitely in, co- in cognitive overload. I found too, just like writing things down, getting them on paper is really important to just kind of clear your mind and reset. Professors, presenters, I think... Cognitive load is a concept that they don't think about as much as they <laughs> maybe should when presenting and just trying to make things as, as simple as possible to make it easy for people to digest that information. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. And, you know, I repurpose this exercise and I know therapists do that as well to how you talk to yourself and sort of 
like your nags, right? How much you nag, the things that are weighing you down. So you can apply the same exercise into just being more self-aware of the type of words that you are using on yourself and the ways that you're thinking and reframing it in ways that are more productive for yourself. So yeah, so that's that's one of the exercises we use a lot. Cool. You said you had a second one? Okay, so the second one is out of critical thinking skills. And this one highlights 50 plus cognitive biases that we should really think about in terms of understanding how we think, how we learn, what drives our attention, right? What we pick up and really uncovering our own biases and assumptions. Perhaps it's from our upbringing or how we learn things, see things that are not no longer serving us. But in this case, this is a card on um, curse of knowledge. And, you know, it's we assume others know what we know. And we have a harder time relating to the less informed perspective. And I think as learning scientists, instructional designers, we have to really keep this in mind when we create courses and modules. And when we work with subject matter experts, the SMEs, where they're like, oh, they should all know this, you know, <laughs> why don't they get it? And they skip a bunch of steps in designing that learning, right? And so it has some of the examples. So this card comes with like real examples and quotes around that just as reminders and exercises. But I just wanted to, you know, show you this one because I think it's just so relevant to learning and performance. Absolutely. I love that one. Whenever it's been in higher ed, it's been in corporate. Whenever someone asks me, why do we need, usually I like to do a beta test or a, or a, a rollout of a, of a program, whether it's e-learning or corporate training or whatever, really. And some people will ask like, why do we need a beta test? And <laughs> the short answer I usually give them is the curse of knowledge. It's the SME knows so much that they, they can't really teach it themselves. And I've noticed this in other domains too, like in uh, in sports, where sometimes the best players don't always make the best coaches because they're so good, they can't explain what they do. They're like so knowledgeable that it's hard for them to translate or kind of unlearn what they know or see their, the assumptions that they're making. So yeah, that one is really relevant too. Yeah, you know, it's so funny, Pat, you mentioned, well, I mean, learning is on learning as well, right? That's part of the learning. So that's really important. Yeah. And so that's why I made these cards, because honestly, I've had people who literally like, sometimes it's hard to give feedback, and it's hard to defend yourself in some way. So I actually have people like giving out specific cards <laughs> to specific people. In this case, you know, if you have a SME who's like, I don't get it, you're like, oh, check out this card. And then they're <laughs> Like, oh, <laughs> and then they put the put it in front of their, you know, monitor just as like a reminder, because we all fall back to our default tendencies. It's not easy to change. Yeah, I could picture an employee giving the, the self-awareness card to the <laughs> to the leader that they don't like. <laughs> being, yeah, yeah, just give then, yeah. it anonymously, right? Drop <laughs> it like on the desk sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, yeah. Jenny, you said you said sometimes teams use these cards, too. Yeah. How do teams use them? Yeah. So a lot of the times teams open with a card. So the, the two cards I've given you are more knowledge exercise based, but there's, I also have prompt 
cards. So I can give you a third example. But what the teams do is, you know, if it's a prompt card, they usually open up their team meeting. So, for example, this nonprofit organization does that every time, where it's the fifty-two essential relationship skill card, where it's literally one sentence question. Like, what can we do and not do to ensure that we're on the same page or to hit our goals? So it's sometimes it's fill in the blank. Other times it's a real reflective question that you know often surprises the team when their teammates answer that question because sometimes priorities are actually not the same, and what they Really want are not the same, or you might not know about this person that really could have helped you to communicate and connect with that person better. So that's one. And then I've also had teams where they or organization where they just put it put like a card on a dry erase board a week at a time, and people anonymously would fill out sort of their answers to it, and it actually also generates additional follow up, you know, initiatives and. Questions. So yeah, with the critical thinking one, where you know there's a lot of biases around consensus building. You know that kind of like the the echo chamber. So for example, the Lego group in Denmark, they got the critical thinking, and I suspect is to facilitate these conversations so that you are not siloed and you are being aware of how you are thinking and how that might be impacting other teams. One of the reasons I asked is in the past I've done some research on like psychological safety within teams, and I can imagine these cards being really useful for that, especially the question ones. Just having these cards, giving people the permission to speak up and share their perspectives on things, I think could be really powerful. Oh, for sure. It's so funny you mentioned that because I mean, so we have this TED talk with psychological safety, a Harvard professor,、uh, but that term was further really looked into by Google, who created, I believe, it's Project Aristotle, the whole thing about psychological safety, the different how we work element, and so I actually used the cards with Google. On psychological safety and creating how to work with me user guides and things around that.、So、that was last year, I believe, almost a year ago.、Um, so it's funny you mentioned that. Yeah, I used to work with the professor Amy Edmondson at Harvard, who gave that talk. And yeah, it's really the concept itself has really blown up. I think it's because, especially team to team, there are kind of these echo chambers where people might be afraid to speak up, even if you like your teammates. It can be uncomfortable sometimes to raise concerns or. Offer an idea. It's almost like the cards give them that permission. It's like their ticket to speak up in a way. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, th- thank you, Jenny. So I know neuroscience plays a significant role in your work. Can you explain how understanding the brain can help parents, educators, and leaders? Got it. So you know, interestingly, it was actually a neuroscience study that really drove the creation of my very first deck. It was a study, I believe, two thousand eighteen, out of、uh, Joint MIT Harvard around the impact of conversations have on brain development, and it's kind of almost like that mirroring concept where we mirror each other and the impact of just. Like connections, relationship building, but also like this reciprocated serve and return type of conversation that enables our children to be able to say, for example, develop literacy,、um, verbal abilities, and where researchers actually found that 
your brain physically are actually changing and developing as a result of of these conversations and connections. And so that sort of debunked the 30 million word gap research, which is you need to read to your kids. Just read, read, read. That's the best thing, right? Where in this case, it's talk to your kids, right? Build that connection. And that is going to neurologically drive development. And so that's one. And the other one is actually from a neuroscientist, Dr. Emordino Yang. And so she actually graduated from Harvard PhD and teaches, I believe, at USC. And she says that, you know, emotion is really where learning begins. And, you know, like simply put, it actually is literally neurobiologically impossible to think deeply about things that you don't care about. And it's your emotions that guide you toward what you care about. And so very simply, you know, if we don't care, we're not passionate, enthusiastic about something, then we just don't learn as effectively and we may never touch this type of learning. So that seems very common sense, right? And so hence why, you know, I just gravitated toward emotional intelligence, understanding that emotions are data and how do you harness these data insightfully to inform you of what you need, what you like to learn, how you learn, when you learn, right? To be the most efficient, effective, and and ultimately how you perform in life and what drives you to be feeling most happy and fulfilled. So I would say neuroscience and especially the latest advancements does say a lot about the importance of emotions, relationship, right, connections. And of course, you need human skills to do all of that. Yeah, I 100% agree. Emotion is so important. And I think sometimes when we think education, you know, we think kind of, you know, the sort of the rational accumulation of facts or information. But you're right. If, if kids or or employees, if they're not motivated to learn, if they just don't care, we know that the learning is not going to to happen. Learning itself is is such an emotional process because it's 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 goal oriented, and if you don't care about the goal, then <laughs> it's not it's not you're not going to make the effort, or your brain's not going to make the effort for sure. We've talked about the age of of AI, and how do you feel that technology or digital platforms have impacted Children's really and and adults' emotional intelligence and social skills. Yeah, you know, don't get me wrong. I'm not one or the other. I think there are a lot of benefits, right, in connecting with a specific community and niches through social media that we would otherwise not be able to to have that exposure. But on the flip side, I think you know, as you know, human development psychologist. It's so much embedded in terms of these dark patterns of of social media that keeps us on the devices so that we can be served up more ads and generate more revenue for these companies that there is just wild, wild west of like not much regulation. And so the invention of the infinite scroll, right? We are going down the rabbit hole continuously. And before we know it, it's been two hours, right? Past. And so that for adults, right, is tremendously ineffective. And you can imagine from a developmental standpoint for children, they just don't have the ability to to take take a pause and be able to, to let go and say, this is not for me anymore. It's 
very, very hard. It's not designed to facilitate that. And the latest, you know, this year, Dr. Vivek Murthy, the U.S. Surgeon General, has really noted strong the warning very loud and clear and that social media is really undermining the kids and teens' mental health. And what also was really concerning to me is that over the years of him as as a doctor, he noted that, you know, the most common pathology was not heart disease or diabetes, you know, the top three things we can think of, right? But it was loneliness. He found that loneliness was often in the background of these real illness contributing amplifying the disease and making it harder for patients to cope and heal. So I think with the trend of social media, now AI, and there's some latest research on the impact of AI on workers that I just presented at a talk, which is, you know, it's leading to more sense of loneliness, which is reflected in alcoholic consumption, right, and sleep deprivation. And so those are definitely some of the things we need to be aware of. What AI tools in, in particular do you, do you recall? Yeah, you know the crazy thing is these are just AI systems. So, so these are so it was actually a collection of four studies globally, not just in the U.S. but I believe also in Malaysia, Taiwan, and another place. And it was on workers who work with AI systems. So not even like just the engineers, but also like real estate consultants, those in operations and finance. And I think essentially, if you, if you work with systems that with AI embed, you have less human connection. What they found was those workers or employees are really reported higher level of loneliness. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That makes that makes me pause with how how much more people are using like, for example, ChatGPT and, and other AI tools now. It's, you know, I know people who use it a lot and have, su- have substituted it for, you know, ask, asking their boss a question or asking for advice from friends. So, I know it could be very good for that, but I think the the implications for yeah human human emotion and, and well being is still still kind of up in the air, and that's that's disturbing. Yeah, it makes me wonder what's coming down the pipeline. Yeah, you know, you're a parent and a, a researcher, obviously. What do you think your your games can do to address some of these these challenges with kids, or like how, how do you see them playing a role? Yeah. You know, it's all about habit building. These problems are not going to solve, be solved with a magical pill or solved within a day. It really is prioritizing and building the habits and the awareness of what's happening. And so I see the cards as really, I call it the training wheel, right? You're learning how to ride a bicycle. In this case, you're learning how to in some ways, manage yourself and be aware and vigilant of what's happening. And so this training wheel in the form of cards are always there. You take it with you, you see it in front of you. It's not overwhelming because life is already so much overwhelming, right? Stress. (laughs) It's a little like, it's a little harmless card that reminds you of your priorities of what is happening so that you're not stuck in, you know, the matrix of like just moving through the days and going through motions. So the biggest thing is building skills, knowledge, attitude, mindset, right? And then through there, day after day, building good, sound, responsible habits so that you can make smart choices. It sounds like your cards are just building that muscle of self-awareness. And I think it's the self-awareness that 
when you're doom scrolling on, on social media that you don't have, adults don't have, and especially kids don't have with their brains still forming. So Jenny, schools are increasingly integrated social emotional learning into their curricula. What role has Mind, Brain, Emotion, your company played in the educational sector or is it playing in the educational sector now? Yeah, you know, I originally created it as really a tool for parents to be in the recreational home community setting. But interestingly, now I I would say schools are actually, or at least corporations and educational institutions have overtaken that in terms of the audience who are using it. And, you know, every single day I get notes from whether it's a counselor, a therapist, a school teacher who are, you know, showing me how it's used. And one of the biggest draw is, you know, they said it's so modern. It's like the modern day tool. The scenarios, the prompts, the exercises are very, you know, modern day, not the type of like manual or things you read that clearly are outdated or designed before, you know, Snapchat <laughs> or Instagram, right? So, and it's clever, it's fun. And they've told me that students are asking to do more of this and they're engaging. So it's in a way that, you know, also doesn't put the burden on school teachers where they have to, again, be the instructor and instructional designers themselves and write out, you know, the scripts and manuals because it's all included. And in fact, some of my cards, most of them have come with online assessment where you can use as pre-post assessment tests to understand skill sets, right? Or what the efficacy of the cards. And then the, a lot of the card decks also come with an online learning library where, you know, if it's a card with a social dilemma, right? Then the online library would literally explain to you for every single card, what do you do in this dilemma? Things to consider, skills you should be talking about, and follow-up questions for this dilemma. And so, you know, I try to make it in a way, and this is with the help of nationally counselors, educators. So we develop almost, it's becoming like a suite, almost like a way where you can just take it and run with it. It's high utility, right? Low effort so that the teachers can really focus on being there for their students, building that relationship, teaching good mindsets, attitudes, skill sets, knowledge, you know, and so we try to bring the quality into into these cards. Teachers are so, I mean, one, underappreciated, but they're busy, (laughs) busy too. And so- I, I like this idea of just giving them the cards and allowing them to use the, like the website to to follow up or giving providing them some guidance on how to use these with people. I love that you do pre and post as well assessment to see if if the cards are kind of driving impact. That's great. Can you share a success story or a memorable experience of a child or family using these tools to improve their SEL skills? Yeah, you know, so I'm a lot about home and school partnerships. So I've done keynotes around that. I think, you know, it's hard to just put the ownership on school. There's so much to teach already. How can we create the learning environment that transcends and extends beyond the school into you know, this culture of learning and performance at home. And so one of the sort of I would say success story is, you know, I once did this parent workshop at a Title I 
elementary school. And it was it was where the kids and the parents were present and it was workshop style around social emotional learning and also hands-on practice. And later on, I like the counselor told me that I didn't notice it, but there are families, you know, this has a lot of families that are single parent or co-parenting divorced families, right? And so often it's just one parent or no parents, you know, really would pay attention. But what he noted after the workshop was that parents were actually co-parents were actually, you know, divorced parents were talking to each other and that they were also collectively having a conversation with their child, right, at home to extend this culture of relationship and understanding and how can I support you using the language of SEL. And so to me, you know, it's not just about a success story of a child, but really of the adults and of the family. And so I really, really love that of just expanding the impact, right, of SEL, not just home, but also in the community. Yeah. In the whole, the human, the human environment of the, of the kid. I mean, they're at school, they're at, they're at home, they're in the community. It's important for everyone to know these, know these skills and to practice that like all the time. I think the concept of emotional intelligence has has been around a, a while, and you've been teaching it. What do you think people get wrong about emotional intelligence? Yeah, you know, so I mentioned that earlier in terms of thinking that it's not a skill, it's something you, you're born with, right? Another big thing, especially, you know, for those who are really naysayers is that they think it makes you soft, Right. Or they think it's, it's about being nice. But what I say, especially when I teach, I have a six week on demand online emotional intelligence certification course on my website. What I teach is, you know, emotional intelligence is not that. And what I tell people, especially engineers and those even in the Naval Academy is that it's not about being nice and it's not about being soft. It really actually it's about being strategic. It's about being able to say what you're feeling and what is happening in front of you, but in a way that other people can understand and can internalize. And it's, you know, it's not about fake nice. Like, I absolutely hate that, right? And you can see through it. It's it's not about brown nosing. It's really about, like I said, naming the elephant, but naming it strategically in a way that you are moving the needle and that you're influencing other people. Yeah. I think one thing I've observed is people who are emotionally intelligent, they're not soft. They're They're actually quite effective in driving things forward. And I think people tend to like them more because they know they're kind of authentic. They're not, they're not using these skills as to like to get something from people. They're, they're just more self-aware. I want to move now to talk about you, Jenny, and just some of your experiences learning and performing. As a researcher, you've had such a long career of a lot of diverse experiences. Can you tell me about a time when you performed at your best or helped someone else perform at their best? What happened and what did you learn? Yeah, I you know, like one thing I can think of is really public speaking. So I would say this one time when I was giving a keynote in a college auditorium to like, I forget, seven, eight hundred people, like these were parents, educators, and something about just being in the flow. I think I perform the best when I'm 
truly just flowing in the flow and connecting with my audience and really speaking from the heart. So I guess that was that was good performance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you were just just flowing with it. Had you prepared a lot before, and or you just really knew your material. You know, I just like interestingly really spoke from the heart. I did prepare some in terms of bullets, but it just kind of really flowed. It's funny you mentioned the word flow because before we talked about zone of proximal development, which I think is talked about in ed- education a lot, where level of, of challenge or, or like the task before you meets your level your level to do it. And I think in the, in the adult context, there's flow, right? Where your amount of resources you have or the skills that you have are like just enough for, for the challenge. So you're in it. It's not too boring, but it's not too difficult either. You're just in that in that sweet spot. Yeah. What about the opposite? What, what about, can you tell me about a t- time that you completely failed or something didn't go as, as expected? What happened and what did you learn? Yeah. So I, you know, I don't really see things as completely failing. I think there's learning in that. But but one thing that really didn't go as well as expected or hoped, I would say, is another speaking thing. It was like actually a speaking competition. And it was it was one of those when in my first year as a PhD, there was a competition around as a researcher, if you can talk about re- your research in practical ways that people can understand within five minutes. So you only had five minutes and maybe like three slides or maybe no slides. And I had made it to, you know, the finals for my university. And so, you know, it was my turn to speak. And honestly, it just like I had what felt like an internal amount of time of this pause where I just like was like, oh, my God, what was I saying again? What's my next line? What am I? Uh, it probably didn't seem that way outward, like to other people. But for me, it was like the scariest moment because I've never had that moment before where I didn't know what to say next. And so, and this was like on stage, right? With other competitors in front of judges and also all these audience members. And I think what had happened was I really had a huge dose of the imposter syndrome right there and then. And, you know, I was first year PhD. I was like, did, did whatever I say, did it even matter? And I was competing with astrophysicists, you know, in the fifth <laughs> year talking about, or this, you know, medicine talking about life-saving research. And here I am talking about something else and that hasn't quite been as deeply, deeply researched. And so I think I was like walking into that stage thinking, oh my God, does this even matter? And that clearly showed. Yeah. I think we all go through that imposter syndrome at, at times in either, you know, professional lives or, or personal lives. And, you know, when you have kind of those nagging thoughts of what am I doing here or like, or comparing with, with other people, you know, you're, if your mind's thinking about that, it's hard to focus on what you, what you're trying to say, right? Your cognitive load is is focused on, oh, how do I look, or what do people think of me? And it's easy to lose your train of thought. Then, for sure, we talked about habits, Jenny. What habits do you have in place to make you effective or efficient in what you do? Yeah, you know, I think I just I have a habit of checking my energy level, right? In some ways, it's related to your cognitive load, but just physically as well, emotionally, mentally, cognitively, am I in this right state? Am I going to, if I tackle this project or learn something, am I going to make the most of it? Am I going to be engaged? I think it's the habits of checking in. But of course, like habits of also 
just understanding your priorities and, you know, getting good sleep and, you know, all those other checklist things. Yeah, that would be also helpful for performing. In a previous episode, we talked about the importance of managing your energy, not managing your time. And I think the mistake sometimes people make is, you know, there's this calendar on their computer and they're trying to live by it, but the human body is not like that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and neither is the mind. It's you have to you have to leverage it and and be a little bit more fluid than the than the dictates of the calendar. Yeah, for sure. A few more questions. What um based on your research or or your experiences, what advice would you give to people on how to learn better? If if you could put something on a billboard or give them a message about how to learn better, um, what would that be? You know, I would start with goals and start with what your emotions are telling you. What is important to you or what matters to you? So I guess, you know, in learning design, what we used to do a lot is W-I-I-F, right? What's in it for me? W-I-I-F-M. Everyone's favorite radio station, W-I-I-F-M. What's in it for me? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I would say that, you know, really know your what drives you. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. What advice do you have for people to apply some of the, or I guess to become more emotionally intelligent in, in their life, aside from your card games, just like day to day when they're going through life, what are some small things that they might do? Yeah, I would say being aware of what you're feeling and you'd be surprised. I think there was... I forget it was an HR like Hayes group or HR report where they found surprisingly a majority of leaders or employees actually can't can't recognize what they were they're feeling in the moment. That was really eye-opening for adult development. And so I think it's really understanding, taking a pause and assess what you're feeling. And a lot of the times it's mixed emotions. It could be good and bad. And the second step is instead of suppressing it or putting a Band-Aid on to really understand what this emotion is telling you in terms of what is important to you. So one example I give a lot is when you're feeling envy, when you're envious of someone who's doing better than you, right? A lot of the times we beat ourselves up or unfortunately, there's also people who beat other people up, right, to feel better about themselves. And that's very unfortunate. But, you know, these are tremendous insights uh, from envy and to understand, you know, hey, maybe I'm feeling this negative feeling because it matters to me. I also want to do this. And so then you can channel your energy productively into doing something about it right? For yourself and not trying to be that person, but maybe turn it into admiration and turn it into, you know, an energy boost to motivate you to do better and try better. Yeah. I love that. I think it was Susan David who talks about our emotions. The writer uh, and the author of Emotional Agility talks about emotions being like almost like a signal or, you know, a, a check engine light of saying, yeah, this thing matters to me. Like all emotions Emotions tell us what our goals are and what we care about. I work with some students on academic skills and they'll talk about being being anxious, just like on tests, blanking or give, with assignments, performing poorly. And I'll, I'll joke with them, well, do you know what your anxiety says about you? That's really awesome. And sometimes they're stumped. They're like, what? Like, how could this anxiety possibly help me? But I tell them, well... It shows that you care. Like if you weren't anxious, you shouldn't be doing this. So you obviously care about this. 
we we just need to tone it down <laughs> a little bit to a more manageable level. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So how do you channel that? How do you tune it down? That's what the fifty-two essential coping skills do. And it's funny that you mentioned Susan David because one of her thing is, you know, she says, you know, like just like you, you know, students or people come to me and say, I don't want to feel this way. I don't. I don't want to have any th- these anxious feelings. And she's like, so you have the goals of a dead person then. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To not yeah. feel anything. Right. So emotions are really telling us what we care about and what we should do about. So that's one thing I would say to for- perform better is to start listening to our emotions. Yeah, Jenny. At the end of the show, I, I like to do rapid fire questions with people. Are you up for some rapid fire questions? Sure. Okay, Jenny. If you didn't do what you do now, what would you be doing, and why? Yeah, honestly, I could be a lot of things. I think I have multiple interests, but I would say a neurosurgeon because, again, I love the brain, the research around it, and I really enjoy working with my hands and helping people. Yeah, that's great. Well, you've you've done a lot in your career already. I know I know you have quite a few interests based on our conversation. If you had to get a tattoo of a short phrase or quote or message to send to people, what would that be? Yeah, I always use the word savor. Saver. That's what it is. Saver. Yeah. Can you can you say more about that? I think savor is coupled with the feeling of awe and the feeling of gratitude. And I think we don't spend enough time pausing and savoring of the fact that, you know, we're alive, healthy, dressed, you know. <laughs> There's so many things to really be in the present for. Yeah, that we exist at all in this like huge universe of or multiverse of, <laughs> of of everything. Yeah, what's something that you're currently excited about? So personally, I, there's a lot of professional, and we talk so much. But I think personally, I think this will align with the podcast. Is that as a parent, you drive your kids all over the place, right? A chauffeur. But this time, this semester, I am actually becoming the learner just like themselves, just like my kids. So they love rock climbing. So we're getting into that. And a couple of my kids love singing. And I thought, you know, instead of driving them, why don't I do it too? I can as well. And so I'm learning singing and I'm rock climbing with them. And it's just so much fun. (laughs) So I'm really excited. That's great. Yeah. You're never too old to learn. Never too old. Absolutely not. What about the flip side? What's something that you're currently worried about? Well, I'm always worried about my kids. <laughs> many, many reasons. So yeah. Yeah. Yep. And then finally, what's what's your next project or, or what are you thinking about next? You know, what I'm thinking about is I've definitely had a good number of years of track record in terms of the online six-week emotional intelligence certification program. These are for working professionals who are at the graduate level. And I'm thinking about expanding it more to corporate workplaces and more university institutions. Wow, that's that's great. It's yeah, I think I think much needed, much needed. Yeah. And then finally Jenny, just the last question. Can I call this the plug zone? Can you just plug yourself like if if people liked our conversation and want to learn more about you, where can they go? Sure. Feel free to learn more about me and really resources, get more resources. There's free online assessments and lots of resources on my website, which is mindbrainemotion.com. And that's also where you can find the card decks as well as on Amazon for prime shipping. You can also find me Instagram, Facebook at mindbrainparenting. So feel free to check it out. Lots of great resources online. 
Great. And we'll, we'll throw all that in the show notes as well. If let's say someone was interested in your card games, where would you recommend that they start? Yeah. You know, I would... Uh, so on the website, it has a guide in terms of which card deck meets your need, but you can also go on Amazon. It's got really detailed support of where which deck is best for you. But for anyone, really anyone in general, I would say the 52 essential relationship skills will really help you become a better learner and perform not just academically. I mean, you can definitely do well <laughs> with professors, with students, peers, make friends good lifelong friendships, but it, it really will help you build more emotional intelligence. Awesome. Well, Jenny Wu, thank you for coming on the Learning and Performance Podcast. Thank you again, Pat. Wow. What a great conversation with Jenny. I enjoy speaking with Jenny so much. She's done so much in her career from her corporate training roles and design roles to her research. And I don't know how she does it all and is a, is a parent as well. She certainly manages her energy, as she mentioned in the conversation. If you're interested in some of Jenny's card games, whether you're a parent, an educator, a leader, a manager, or just a human, you should definitely check out her website or search for the games on Amazon. I think they have a major role in team building and group formation. And I'm certainly going to look into that in the learning experiences I build for helping teams perform better. Emotional intelligence consists of four pieces. First is self-awareness, your awareness of how you're feeling and what you're thinking and just your overall kind of mood or, or mental state. Second is self-regulation. So your ability to regulate emotions and express them effectively. Third is with others. So awareness of their emotions and how they're feeling. And the fourth is social skills, your ability to interact with other people. Thanks for joining this episode and see you next month for another exciting episode of the Learning and Performance Podcast. Okay, learners, over to you. What's one thing that you took away from this episode? Take a moment and just make a mental note of one big idea, strategy, or tool. Give it a try and see what difference it makes. And then feel free to share your experience on the webpage for this episode. Remember, improvement equals reflection plus action. What are you going to do now after listening to this episode? If you've enjoyed this episode, I've got three requests for you. First, if you'd like to receive future episodes, make sure to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app so you'll never miss an episode. Subscribing also helps the podcast reach a wider audience and helps me to continue to produce high-quality content for the LNP community. I'd also be grateful if you can take a few minutes to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help the podcast reach a wider audience and attract more listeners who can benefit from this content. Plus, your feedback helps me improve the show. So if you have a moment, leave a review and let me know what you think. Last but not least, if you really like the show, I'd appreciate it if you could share the podcast with friends or colleagues directly or via social media. When you do, make sure to share one thing you learned. Remember, when you teach something, it's like you're learning it again. That's all for today's episode of the Learning and Performance Podcast. I hope you found the things we discussed helpful and are thinking of ways you can apply them to enhance your learning and performance. Join us next time for another episode. And until then, keep on learning.